Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press. Sunbury Press publishes print and electronic books under 10 different imprints in a variety of categories sold worldwide, wherever books are sold. This episode is about Jessica Weibel's new book, Dead Letters, delivering unopened mail from a Pennsylvania ghost town. On assignment for a small-town newspaper in rural Pennsylvania, rookie reporter Jessica Weibel meets Joan Swigert creative fireball and pioneer in print. As the two women forge a relationship based on their passion for storytelling, Joan reveals a mystery that she had discovered years ago, but had never solved a pile of dead letters found in an abandoned general store just before it was torn down. Joan gives Jessica the letters each stamped and dated over a hundred years ago and encourages Jessica to investigate the untold stories of the people and places contained in each one. What begins as yet another assignment for the reporter, a young millennial who relies happily on email and texting as the primary means of communication, develops into a heartfelt mission to tell the story of the people and places in the letters. The young reporter's journey takes unexpected twists and turns through the quiet lumber towns of Pennsylvania, the early American settlements in Massachusetts, the bustling crowds at Ellis Island, the violent strikes at the Passaic textile mills, and beyond. Dead Letters is an intimate portrait of small-town America and the people who, at times, risked everything in pursuit of economic prosperity, religious freedom, and social equity. Jess Weibel is a freelance writer and reporter. She's also a founding editor for the Watershed, the Watershed Journal, an inclusive regional literary magazine for the Western Pennsylvania wilds. Jess leads two writing groups, the Writers Block Party and the Rebecca M. Arthur's Young Writers. She lives with her husband and two boys in Brookville, Pennsylvania. Jessica Weibel, welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the moment that you and I first started talking about this project, I knew it was going to be a very special book. My worry was that maybe it would take a while to get it done, but you, uh, you got it done re- relatively rapidly. I think you, you put your energy to it. We are greatly appreciative that uh, the book came out in such a short time after we met. Uh, if you could, please tell the audience a little more about how you stumbled upon these letters. The letters were actually given to me by my friend, Joan Swigart, my mentor and friend, who had found them in this abandoned general store in sometime in the early 90s. And after we got to know each other, Joan, I was at her house interviewing her for another article, and she brought out this uh, bag full of these old documents and letters. And at that point, I, I was still trying to kind of figure out and put into context what these were and... Um, Joan didn't even know because the letters, most of them were still sealed. 
so uh, I, I kind of put them aside for a minute and tried to wrap my head around what exactly I had. And I don't think I realized how special they were until I really started um, piecing together the people and places where these letters intersected. So how did Joan end up with these? She saw them lying in the post office, uh, the post office general store. It was about to be torn down. It had been abandoned for several decades, actually. Um, And the owner of the property wanted to uh, demolish it just so that, you know, they didn't have to pay the property taxes. So they were in the middle of tearing down this old building when Joan happened upon, uh, she was actually looking for architectural salvage for uh, a renovation project she was doing on a home. And she saw them lying there and uh, it piqued her curiosity. And that's the great thing about Joan is she's just so curious. Everything is a story for her, a story waiting to be told. So she saw these letters and she saw that they were sealed and she wondered, you know, what happened here? Why weren't they delivered? Uh, So she asked the gentlemen who were working on the demolition of the building if she could have them. And they said, sure, we're just going to burn them anyway. May as well, you know, take them off our hands. Uh, and, then, and then she just kept them for years and years. I just have to say, you know, as, as somebody who in the past collected postage stamps, and sometimes you'd go to a, uh, a stamp show and there'd be old envelopes there. Sometimes they were, weren't open, but uh, many times you'd get an envelope that had a letter in it. And I was always my first inclination as soon as I got home and understand this is when I was a teenager and a young man. Uh, I thought I got to read this letter. I got to open this. It's got a stamp, Mm -hmm. you know, from 1870 on it or 1900. And I guess my interest in history, I, I instantly would dive in. And I remember reading a letter one time that was written in Kansas from one relative to another. And it talked about a neighbor who had committed suicide and it was a really tragic letter, a very strong uh, story that was conveyed. And I, it it really made an impression on me that, that these old letters, I mean, this was the way people communicated back then. Um, I mean, you had a telegraph, you had a telephone, but the average person would use a two or three or four cent stamp. I forget what the postage was back then. But, you know, they send a postcard, they send a letter, and they'd write a note. And those notes and letters were cherished. And, you know, when you got a letter in the mail, it was a big deal. You, you almost couldn't wait to read it. It was the first thing you did. So um, I'm just wondering why, why Joan, did she ever tell you how she managed to not give in to that curiosity? Hmm. That's a great question. Joan, you kind of have to know a little bit about her personality. She she has is the type of person – who has all of these creative impulses, all of these talents from photography to writing to um, painting, you know, all these things that she wanted to put energy into and also balancing that with her personal life and raising her children and, you know, um, taking care of her family. So, so a lot of times she would, you know, accumulate things, uh, and you could see that when you walked into her house, you know, the stacks and stacks of paperwork and projects just kind of um, waiting to be uh, taken care of. So she she just uh, had this way of sort of accumulating things and then 
getting distracted, I guess, with life and with other projects. So um, they were just kind of something that she always meant to get to and never did. But she never opened them. And that is curious because you would think that, you know, she would want to see what's in them. But uh, I think she, in her mind, um, she didn't know if she would get in trouble or, you know, what might happen if she did. So she was a little bit hesitant that way. That's true. Yeah. There is that concern about this was unopened mail that was never delivered. So I, I think there's some laws about that, but I don't know, I guess statute of limitations mm-hmm. uh, long past. What did you find out about? Uh, I'm sure you you thought for a second about that. Did you know anything about the postal laws and unopened mail? Um, what did you find out? I, yeah, I I kind of looked around to see if there would, and I talked with some people at the uh, National um, Postal Service Museum uh, in the Smithsonian and uh, talked with a local postman here in Brookville about it and, you know, mentioned how I came upon the letters and things like that. So that was kind of my method of feeling out, you know, how is this going to be looked upon by people who do this for a living? And uh, they were really supportive and helpful and encouraging in the project. So I felt pretty confident moving forward. Now, this was back before zip codes. And in many cases, you could write a letter to somebody by putting their name in the town because the postman would know know, where they lived Mm -hmm. or they came to the post office to get their mail. Now, I know these letters aren't, you know, 200 years old or about 100 years old. How did you feel when you uh, when you got these in your hands? I mean, how hard was it for you to resist opening them, or did you just dive right in? Yeah, I really didn't have the hesitation that Joan did. I, I when I took the letters, I thought of them as you know an assignment. I thought of them as something that was now for me to explore and uncover, and that's really what Joan you know, the directive that she gave me was, you know, these are yours now, and this is something that was meant for you. I mean, she was really um, emphatic about sort of this idea of fate and that uh, this is what was meant to happen. And so, um, yeah, when when I opened them, I I thought a little bit about, okay, I've got to track. And at that point, I didn't know it was going to be a book. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Uh, so I I kept track and organized everything, and then each night I would look at some of the letters, and I would write down my experience of what I was opening and just jot down notes and things uh, that I would be able to kind of keep fresh in my mind so that I didn't get confused. Because at first, I didn't know these people. I didn't know anything about them. I had no context for what I was reading. So it was really hard to not only decipher um and transcribe them, you know, they're all handwritten, a lot of spelling errors, a lot of you know, kind of sloppy penmanship. Um, but then the ones that were in foreign languages were particularly difficult to figure out. So uh, I had to be really methodical about that at first. So just to put this in context, it the the glue that holds all these letters together is this ghost town in Pennsylvania. So were these all letters that were inbound to that town or were there some that were supposed to be outbound from that town and were never sent or 
could could you discern any of that? Give us a sense of a sense of place. Hmm. The ones that were uh, sealed and in envelopes were inbound, coming in through how. And for different reasons, some of the reasons I was able to find out, and after investigating and piecing together the clues, I was able to find out why it was misdirected to how. Um, and then some of them were, there were a few that were not in envelopes that were just uh, kind of loose leaf out uh, in this pile. And those, I, I, some of them, it looked like they were uh, inbound, and some of them you couldn't be sure. So, um, so yeah, there were about 10 letters total that I was able to really follow through with on the research, and I would say most of them were coming in through house. Some of them in the right place and for some reason never reached the right person, and uh, some of them were misdirected. So they were meant for another town, another state, um, some of them. That's right. And they, they ended up in how? Yeah, there was one that was meant for an address in Pittsburgh, um, and uh, it was House Street and uh, uh-huh. in Pittsburgh, and so they got that one wrong uh, when they were writing out the address. Another one I have no idea how or why – um, the person wrote the address wrong, but it was meant for Oklahoma City and ended up all the way in hell. So, wow. Uh, it was just kind of this fluke thing. And and that happens a lot, I guess. I mean, the, when I did my research on the dead letter office, the central office in Washington, D.C. at the time, I mean, they were flooded with mail coming in that was um, addressed to the wrong person or had some kind of something wrong with the way the address was written and, uh, you know, so you had these dead leather sleuths who would try to piece together these clerks, trying to piece together and figure it out just, you know, much the same as what I did. So this town of Howe, this village, how long did it exist? Uh, well, that's an interesting question because the population trends really, I, I would say the heyday of Howe was around the turn of the century was really when the population was at its height. And that was due to the lumber industry, and um, and by you know 1910, I would say that started to dissipate in the area. So um, then in the 50s, there was um, you know it was holding steady with family farms, and that's the area had turned more to an area for uh, farming. And um, there's a big farm that's still there called Broadacres Farm, uh, and a, and a handful of others so but then i would say with the people that i talked to who still live in hell around the 60s 70s 80s is when really it it started to fade in terms of recognition and got absorbed into brookville which is you know the bigger town um and now if you ask somebody where how is people who are born and raised around here they they don't know what you're talking about. I found that to be particularly interesting. All that's really left is a sign. And there's there's really no no buildings left, no town center, no like uh, corner where there's a store and a gas pump and a post office, nothing like that. No, you know what's funny is the general store was the center of the community. I mean, you had people coming in 
the general store for provisions and medicine and, uh, you know, food, things like that. And then uh, as a post office, obviously, it was a hub of activity. But other than that, you know, they, the school is no longer there, schoolhouse there. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, there weren't a whole lot of other – I mean, it was a small community there, but there weren't a whole lot of other – you know, central um, public spaces. Yeah. So this is this is like opening a random time capsule. You know, when you when you create a time capsule right, in yeah. an important building, the community gets together and they decide what to include. You know, and they put some mementos or some maybe the newspapers from that day or something else of interest, something that might have a little bit of historic interest. In this case, you've gotten these random letters that were misdirected from a certain point in time from a town that no longer exists. And so it's just fascinating. All the mysteries wound up in this. Tell us a little bit about that first letter or maybe, you know, the letter that most struck you because, you know, you're seeing this, this window of time, but a very limited window of time on people that no longer exist, you know, getting a sense of what their lives are like. Uh, Tell us what you, or give us a story of of one of these letters. You're absolutely right. And I just wanted to say really quickly, the one thing that the people that I talked to who still live in hell, who care about its history and still, you know, have traces of their heritage and family members who are deeply connected to the community they're just so grateful that someone's paying attention to that. You know, they're so grateful that someone's interested in a place that so many people have forgotten. Um, The first letter that I researched was a letter from Andrew Gailey to George Gailey. And George Gailey was the postmaster and owner of the general store. So for some reason, he had uh, eight brothers and sisters, I believe, or, or nine brothers and sisters, he had a big family, <laughs> and um, he, for some reason, kept this one letter from his older brother, Andrew. And out of all the, you know, dozens of personal letters that he kept, he had this one. And I'm not sure why, but it's an interesting letter. When I first read it, it seemed kind of mundane and perfunctory, you know, in terms of communication, how are you doing, and uh, Andrew asked George if he could look into a job position of a county clerk because he wanted to come back home. He had moved away um, to pursue lumber, the lumber industry in other areas after it started to wane around the house. And um, when I researched Andrew's life, the tone of the letter took on a whole different shade of meaning, um, you know, I I got to understand Andrew, his disconnection from home, his kind of personal life, his family life that um, didn't seem to be deeply connected, and the way in which he died, which, um, you know, just shows that he never really did make it back home. And I think that that was really a poignant thing for me to find out um, that, you know, for these people, this connection and these letters really show how 
you know, their hopes and their dreams and uh, their fears and all of these things that if you start to understand their story, you can see that within each letter. Yeah. Was that maybe a letter never sent or you think a letter he just cherished? Yeah, it was a letter sent from Andrew to George. George had kept it for all those years, even after his death, it was kept. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there was a, you know, an upset in their relationship after that, or, you know, for some reason, George kept this letter, you know, safeguarded in, in his store. Or maybe he set it aside and other things got on top of it. <laughs> you never yeah. know, right? Yeah. So what do you, what was the uh, the farthest flung letter? The the most uh, bizarre letter that you found, or the 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 toughest mystery to solve. Ooh, there were a lot of them, but I would say the letter that was written in Yiddish uh, presented some real challenges, just in terms of having it translated, and then really understanding the context of the history um, behind all of that. So it was sent from what was then considered part of the Austrian Empire. Um, and uh, all the way to, well, it ended up in Howe. It was meant for Pittsburgh. Um, but getting a, a letter translated uh, from Yiddish to English is not easy to do, especially in a small town where I live. And, um, and in pursuing that, I think the challenge was actually really important for me because pursuing that, I got to talk with so many um, people, you know, members of the Jewish community uh, locally and in more urban areas and understand the Jewish experience at that time in rural Pennsylvania. I did a lot of reading on that. Um, and then when I did finally find someone to translate it, uh, the person who did, he was just incredible. He gave me such, uh, you know, great background for each part of the letter and what the significance and the references to, you know, um, religious texts and uh, holidays and all of these things that were so important that if I would have just gotten a plain, you know, word-to-word uh, translation, I, w- I wouldn't have known, you know, half of what I did being able to have all of that information. So, um, and then the story behind that letter was just, I mean, uh, when that letter broke open and I found out so much about this family, in fact, there were so many newspaper articles written about them and the tragedies and successes in uh, this family's lives. I mean, it was just a truly American story of a family immigrating to America and that whole experience. So just to be clear for our listeners, your book is about the experience of coming upon these letters, how they, they got into your hands, the experience of opening them and then translating and or just researching them. And then you reconnect them as, as much as possible with, with people alive today. Tell us an instance where that was able to be done. There were several instances where I was able to deliver these letters at last to living descendants of the family. And in every case, it was just the most uh, wonderful and rewarding experience. Um, People were quite surprised. There was one woman who, uh, she was an avid researcher and genealogist uh, 
for her family history and had all of these artifacts from her past. She had other letters, in fact, written by the same person that I had a letter, uh, you know, the same person who had written the letter that I had. And uh, so for her, this was just another piece to a puzzle that she had been putting together for years and years, ever since she was little, and listening to the stories of her grandfather, you know, the stories he would tell about family members. And for her, they were real people. They weren't just abstract names and faces. So yeah. that was an especially wonderful connection. Yeah, well, what a great project. Hey, Jess, we have about five minutes to go, and I wanted to to have some time here to talk about what else, the other things that you're working on. I know we've discussed the Watershed Journal. Uh, maybe we could talk about that for a minute. Tell us, tell us about the Watershed Journal. The Watershed Journal is a literary magazine uh, and also a nonprofit organization, a literary organization that I and my team, we started a few years ago. We put out a quarterly magazine with all types of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, photography, artwork, and it's really meant to represent our region of the Pennsylvania wild, so what we refer to as the Western Pennsylvania wild. We feel like uh, our region really needs more representation, and there's so many great stories to be told here, so we want to empower authorship and storytelling in our area. And that's in Brookville, Pennsylvania, which is Jefferson County? Yeah, so we're based in Brookville, uh, but we serve, I think it's up to, I think it's like 11 different counties now. Um, And it's had just such a wonderful response. Um, It's been amazing. So if I was to triangulate this, this is the area northeast of Pittsburgh, southeast of Erie, um, that northwestern Allegheny area. Kind of the middle of the state, yeah. Okay. Okay, very good. Um, you know, what else are you writing? Do you have any other writing projects? I know you and I have talked about some other possible books. Uh, maybe you could tease us with a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a story that I was actually, a project I was working on before I started Dead Letters that I'm looking forward to getting back into. And uh, it's a story about a, a site in Brookville that's really peculiar. And I know you've been there. There's really nothing like it. Um, it's called the Scripture Rocks Heritage Park, and um, the story goes around, and we're talking kind of the same time period as Dead Letters, around the turn of the century, early 1900s, but there was a man named Douglas Stolman who um, just had these series of circumstances that led him to, you know, be estranged from his children. Um, his wife died, and he ended up sort of wandering the... Uh, forest of uh, Brookville here and happened upon this huge sandstone boulder and was so overcome with a spiritual emotion that it prompted him to start dedicating rocks uh, like, like one might dedicate a church. And he really kind of started his own interpretation of Christianity. He started holding open air services and then he started inscribing scripture in his own thoughts um, into these rocks, but he became a fanatic about it. I mean, he started living out in the woods, uh, working on this nonstop. He wrote a manuscript. So uh, this this story gets into so many interesting things about 
this time in history with alternative religions and um, the ways he was involved with that, um, his, you know, mental health and kind of the issues surrounding um, what might have driven him towards this. Uh, in fact, he was committed towards the end of his life. So, um, and, and, you know, his story, which is really unique. Yeah, I think that will be an interesting book. We've been talking to Jess Weibel and about her fantastic book, Dead Letters. Uh, Jess, it's been great having you on. We are out of time, so we hope to have you back for the Stallman book when it's done. Well, where thank can, you. Uh, this has been great. Yeah, where can people find you? Uh, I've got my website, JessWeibelAuthor.com. And I'm also on Facebook um, and Twitter. All right. Thank you, Jess. We'll have you back another time. Thank you so much. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Be sure to check out our books at www.sunburypress.com or search for our titles on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other booksellers worldwide. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are hundreds more available on the BookSpeak Network. You can find our channel on blogtalkradio.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.